Welcome, 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 geeks and nerds, girls and boys, to another all-new edition of geek to me Radio. Today we are joined by singer-producer Ellie Moore talking all about her new single that's coming out and her career in the business. We'll then be joined by writer-director Peter Bishai talking about his movie, Rapid Eye Movement. All that and more, stand by. As always, we do appreciate your subscribing here and listening. If you've not yet subscribed, maybe you've just stumbled across us, please do make sure to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Podomatic, wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, And please leave us a five-star review. We always appreciate that. It does help us rank higher in the Google search engines as well. And if there's something you'd like to hear on the show, something you're interested about, something we've done in the past, feel free to drop us an email, geek2meradio at gmail.com. Dot com. Without further ado, let's get right to our first guest. We're joined now by Ellie Moore, uh, upcoming single OK, which we'll be playing later on in the broadcast. Uh, pop musician, music producer, she kind of does it all. Ellie, how are you? Oh my gosh, James, thank you so much for asking and for having me today. I'm doing so amazing. Thank you. Good, good, good to have you on. Um, I was very intrigued. You're the singing voice behind the Barbie franchise, which uh, I've been obsessed with that show, The Toys That Made Us. They did a whole series on Barbie which I never played with growing up, but it was a fascinating series and the toys behind it. Did you have Barbies? Uh, were you, is that something that you like gravitated towards as soon as the project was kind of offered to you? Talk, talk a little bit about getting involved with that. Oh my gosh. Yeah, no. So honestly, this has been a dream come true for me. Um, as a kid, I grew up playing with Barbies, watching, they had, um, you know, a movie series that I think was just starting when I was a kid. And so, um, yeah, I watched the movies growing up, knew all the songs from like the different variations because some were like princess, some were like, you know, dolphin adventures, you know, they had all, all the different types. And so I was always really, really drawn to the franchise just because like, you know, they were always, you know, encouraging young girls to be anything that they want to be. And obviously me being in music, you know, I'm out here really doing my best to be anything I want to be. And so I'm really lucky that I get to have the career that I do and kind of be behind a project that means so much to me and has such a great message as well. So So yeah, Barbie's been really, really fun to do. And just music in general, has this always been something you've, uh, you've been into? Is it, uh, did you have influences that kind of drew you in? They, they saw a talent in you and kind of steered you in that direction. Talk a little bit about your origin of story, I guess, as far as getting into music. Oh my gosh. Honestly, I feel like to answer your first question, I didn't really have a choice. Like my, my like personality and who I am, I started musical theater when I was super duper young and, you know, I was really lucky to have parents that were very nurturing and, you know, kind of saw the creative side of me. And instead of kind of being like, okay, you have to go do the school route. They were very much like, okay, let's nurture this. Let's see where it goes. You know, they kind of provided me with what they could, you know, um, I moved to Nashville at a really, like really young age. And so, yeah, I ended up writing songs at that point from like 13 to, you know, now obviously, but, you know, I moved to LA three years ago. And so the journey has just been continuing. So I'm, I'm really lucky that I've been surrounded by such a great support system. And then obviously Barbie on top of that kind of came into my way because I was already in music. So, I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of living the dream over here. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> that's perfect. That's all we can ask for is to do what we love to do and obviously get paid for it. That's, that's the ideal. <laughs> right? Oh my gosh. Anytime I I think about it, I'm like, I really hope that, you know, I'm making my parents proud because they, they did everything they could to get me here. So I, I know I just want to like reward them for that. I'm like, look, I'm working hard too. Cause you worked hard for me at a young age. So, you know, I really want to do, do right by them. And songwriting, I, 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 people draw a lot of personal experience from songwriting. You've been doing it since you said you were 13. 
Um, kind of walk me through the process of where the ideas for the songs you write, you come up with, uh, wh- what your experiences with the songwriting and who were like some of we in music, people always have these early influences. They're like, Oh, I love the music of this person. I tried to kind of go in that style. Other people kind of blaze their own path. Where do you kind of find yourself with the music writing process? Wow, honestly, so many great questions. Um, I on it, I would say that like you know to kind of go in linear order. I feel like you know when I was younger, songwriting was one of those things that you know kind of came naturally to me. But obviously, like the structure of things, I was really lucky to be in Nashville. There were a lot of older, amazing writers, you know, more experienced that just kind of sat me down and said, okay, this is what you need to know to have the quintessential song. Like, this is what you need to know. Because like, in my head, I'm like, I'm just gonna sing la di da di da And that's, you know, a song to me. But you know, to have such amazing, you know, educated songwriters come in and be like, no, 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 this is how you actually do it. And be patient with a young kid and just like teach them how to, how to songwrite. You know, I was very fortunate. And so, I mean, you know, I would say that I, I drew from life experiences and I kind of would just come in and tell stories and a lot of people would help me craft from there, which is really funny because now the tables have turned and I am in the music production duo Liar and, you know, one of my heavier roles is songwriting and, you know, helping artists develop what they want to say. And so I feel, you know, very nostalgic being the other person. I've been in the seat before being the 13-year-old in the room being like, okay, you know, I'm not the most educated songwriter here, but, you know, I, I'm really willing to be here and tell my story. And so it's nice to see other artists because I've, you know, be that way because I've been there before. So, I mean, you know, songwriting for me now has gotten to a point where I'm writing other people's stories, which I'm very grateful for as well, just because, you know, I get to hear other people's side of life and, you know, all of their adventures and stories and just their walks. And so, I mean, it's just, it, it feels like I'm learning so many different assets of life and like hearing other people's stories that just kind of solidify to me that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm like, I'm learning so much. So I I love what I do. And you perfectly segued into my next question. Thank you for that. I was going to talk about the music production aspect. (laughs) This is the best interview ever. Um, With music producing, (laughs) I know that especially now, I I don't want to get political, but with the Me Too movement, um, I know that there's a very small percentage of female producers and you coming up and creating that safe space for musicians. Talk a little bit about, um, obviously it's important, but talk a little bit about your role in music producing and uh, what you are doing to create a safe environment in that aspect. Well, I'm actually so glad that you asked that. I think it's so important that we talk about this more, especially being a female producer. I feel like it's almost, you know, kind of my job to talk about this and to, you know, bring light to the situation. And, you know, um, we love all of our like male collaborators as well. It has nothing to do with like them. Everybody's great. Everybody's talented. But, you know, it is it is tough. We have faced various situations being female producers, but we're very lucky to have each other. I would definitely say we're better in numbers. And I'm really lucky that I have my best friend by my side to kind of, you know, um, defeat things and, you know, diffuse situations and, you know, talk things through and power through. So, I mean, you know, as a, as music producers, our first and foremost thing when someone comes in is that they're comfortable. You know, I've been in many a session and so has Alina where, you know, we've just felt uncomfortable. We felt like we couldn't tell our story. We couldn't cry if we wanted to. Or, and, you know, it's by no fault of, you know, the person or anything. And maybe it was, I'm not really sure, but, you know, I I think it's harmless, but, you know, once you've been through something, you do everything you can to avoid that happening to other people if it's definitely been, like, a bad experience. So, you know, when people come in, especially our younger artists, you know, we want to make sure that they feel like they're just hanging out with their big sisters for the day. You know, one of our artists who is in more of the, like, dance community, but she's, you know, a really incredible artist, Kenzie Ziegler. We work with her quite a bit. We've been working with her since she was 12. You know, she, she came in and she was like, these are my people. Like, I don't want to go anywhere else. And, you know, anytime she gets thrown into a different situation, she always finds a way to bring us in because, you know, she knows she's safe with us. She knows that she can tell us she doesn't like something. And that I think is even more important than just like, you know, being a female producer or whatever. I'm like the artist feeling comfortable and feeling like they can tell you, I don't like something or I do like something that creative bond that you have with the artist. You can't buy that. You can't buy people feeling comfortable with you. So we're very lucky that, you know, we have a lot of artists that feel this way about us. We feel that way about them. And, you know, that's just the environment we want to create. Is, and especially we want to inspire other producers, male or female, to to kind of, you know, make their artists feel at home. You know, buy a really nice couch, let them cry on it. And that's that's the gig. <laughs> yeah, I would think you'd need that foundation, that, that, that base for any uh, art to come and really be authentic. 
you do need that safe yeah. feeling. You've got to have that to start with a, a, a firm launching point. Otherwise, you, I assume, will lose something in the overall product. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like, you know, like I said, that comfort of just you'll get the best product. They'll be happy because like at the end of the day, you know, we've talked about it. Obviously, I have my own artist project and I know that if, you know, producers of any kind were pushing something on me or I felt like I was doing something I didn't want to do, even though I'm the one who has to go sing it 10,000 times, you know, like it's not a good feeling. You won't have a good feeling towards those people that made you do that decision. So I think, you know, keeping the artists happy first and foremost, excited about the music, this should be fun like at the end of the day this should be fun like we get to do something creative for a living like let's live let's do something fun you know what i mean and i know with uh we mentioned <laughs> there being so few female producers do you find that an advantage or a disadvantage i'm assuming it can be a little bit of both um and why aren't there more at this point is it something we're going to see more of coming hopefully or do you think this is kind of a uh is it a niche for you kind of being one of the few I love how this question is kind of phrased like I'm the leader of female producers, which is so funny and cool. Like I'm like, oh, I do know of a force that's coming. Um, you know, I, I really am excited. We've been involved in a lot of um, female uh, writing camps coming up. So we were actually just in one a few weeks ago. And, you know, just to meet other female writers and female producers, you know, I think female producers can just get a bad rep, kind of like any, like, career at all like or any kind of um like I guess genre of job you know I feel like everyone you know is not really used to a sort of thing but that sort of thing but it's 2019 and in my mind I'm like okay let's like get on board with this you know you shouldn't be shocked that a girl can you know put a snare and a hi-hat together like it's really not that hard but you know um it, it is cool to see a lot more coming uh coming up in the in the industry and obviously like Ariana Grande's team is like predominantly female producers at this point i believe seven rings one of her biggest songs um thus far was a female producer which i was really excited to hear so yeah i mean like there's more and more coming up i'm super stoked for it and you know like obviously you know advantages disadvantages involved it's like i think everybody has a different experience but i hope as a whole we can just have more advantages for all of us you know being female producers but i would love to see it come to an even playing field at some point so and Dave was kind enough to send me over. Uh, I was able to listen to your upcoming single, OK, um, with what when you make your own music, obviously you're you're wearing so many hats. It's got to uh, in, in your brain uh, switch off the producing and switch off the writing and, and you start focusing on the singing and everything. How does your brain kind of reconcile? Are you able to kind of uh, compartmentalize, I guess, your different positions? And when you're in the booth recording a song, where's your mind? How do you kind of uh, prepare yourself for something like that? And we're going to get the answer to that question, get a little deeper into the mind of Ellie Moore right after this. Stand by. Barbie dress for swim and fun is only $3. Her lovely fashions range from $1 to $5. Look for Barbie wherever dolls are sold. Hi, I'm Bex Taylor-Klaus from Voltron. I play Pidge, and you're listening to Geek to Me Radio. And we're back. This segment, uh, the show, really, this entire show, brought to you by the city of St. Charles. DiscoverSTCharles.com is the website. The Convention and Visitors Bureau of Greater St. Charles has been fantastic. They've supported this show from day one. They were the very first people to come on board when I asked. Thrilled to have them. I do know a little something about St. Charles, having worked there professionally quite a bit uh, with several of their festivals, helping them plan events and things like that. A fantastic bunch over there. Elizabeth Phelps has been amazing. And of course, Joe Ward, uh, the previous head of the CVB, just a phenomenal guy. Great people to work with. And it shows in the type of way they represent the city. Uh, the Convention and Visitors Bureau of St. Charles, it's visited by a ton of people every single year, most notably at Christmas, when their annual Christmas Traditions Festival goes on. If you're from out of town and you're a fan of the holiday season, you've got to come to St. Charles. Please come to St. Charles. Uh, their annual Christmas Traditions Festival is in its 45th year. It starts the day after Thanksgiving, usually goes through about a couple days before Christmas, sometimes on Christmas Eve, depending on when that day falls. Um, you can interact with different 
historical Santas from around the globe, Père Noël from France, Father Christmas from England, uh, international gift givers like La Bafana. We also have living history characters like Ebenezer Scrooge and Tiny Tim running around out there. Uh, it's a fantastic time, and I, I'm, I'm not even kidding. People come from all over the globe for this event. We have people who I'll talk with every single year. They're visiting from France. They've come from Russia. Uh, they're here from the Middle East for Christmas traditions. It's an amazing event. Right now, it's our last weekend of Legends and Lanterns. Hopefully, you got out to see it if you're a Halloween fan. But these aren't the only times of year. There's always something happening in historic St. Charles. It is always a fantastic place to visit year-round. If you have not had yet had the chance, uh, check out the website first, discoverstcharles.com, and look at all the things there are to see and do. Come for the food, come for the fabulous historical things there are to see, and then stay for whatever reason. Uh, there's always something fun to be had in St. Charles, good food to be eaten, just ate at Salt and Smoke earlier this week, and <laughs> it's uh, just another fabulous restaurant in a list of fabulous restaurants and places to eat in St. Charles. Uh, the website, once again, discoverstcharles.com. Make sure you check that out. They will appreciate it, and I certainly will appreciate it as well. Before we went to break, we were talking with singer, songwriter, producer Ellie Moore, asking her about all the different hats she wears, uh, what her mindset is when she steps into the booth to sing versus actually doing the production end of it, etc. Thank you so much for caring about my mental health. You're over here like, okay, we got to make sure she's okay. She's doing a lot of things at once. Um, I, you know, I, I, that's a great question. I've actually never been asked that before. Um, you know, I think of myself as kind of being someone who does love to multitask. I'm super into that. I'm very much like I can turn it on and turn it off very quickly. Um, you know, I think being in Liar with Alina for so long, I kind of grew up with her. We started Liar when I was 18 and I'm 23 now. Um, and so we started Liar then and, you know, she was, I was at her house every day recording every single day I was on the mic. So being on the mic is so second nature to me at this point. I've just like by recording demos and like full vocals and, you know, ha have not like whatever it is. It's like, I've just, I've been on the mic so much that I don't even think about it anymore. It's almost like a science in my mind, you know, when you're just like, you've done something for so long, it's like, okay, I just turn it on and I just do what I do and somehow it happens, you know? So, I mean, like, obviously when I'm recording my own music, I'm a lot more calculated and like, you know, the choices that I make are very deliberate in my voice. Um, but you know, when I'm just cutting a demo for someone, it's like, I just hop on and do it in two seconds and then, you know, move on. But, you know, for the most part, I'm very deliberate about my own vocals for my own songs. And, um, yeah, I hope, I hope that shows, I, I love pop music so much. And I, you know, I really want to pay tribute to, my like idols growing up and just people I respect a ton and love. So, um, yeah, I just, I'm a big fan of pop music and, and I can't wait for people to keep hearing more music from me as an artist. Cause it's like, this is my fourth single, I believe. Yeah. My fourth single. And you know, I'm, it's, it's a great market right now to just be putting stuff out. Like people are really excited about more and more content. So you're able to just put out as much as you want versus like, you know, back a few years ago, it used to be, you know, you had to get approval for stuff. Even if you were wanting to put out a single, there had to be so much behind it. And now these days it's like, okay, just put it up and see what happens and it might pop off. You know, you never know. So, I mean, I'm really excited that this is kind of the climate of what's happening because I feel like it gives me the creative space to do more. So I'm stoked. It's really, uh, when you think about it, when you sit down and actually think it's kind of, it's painful for someone like me who's a bit older to think back, oh, I remember, you know, music production used to be kind of a thing and you had to get the CDs and there were, you know, now everything, so much is yeah. online, it makes it, you know, like you're on YouTube, you're on Spotify, you're on Pandora. And it's from a, mm -hmm. I guess, both as an artist like you are, but also from a production standpoint, it must take a lot of the weight off, I would think, because there's so many different formats and so many ways to push what you're wanting out there into the public consciousness. That's got to be really a great time to be a performing artist. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, you know, the more and more Alina and I started, of Liar, started working with, you know, more influencer, entrepreneur, YouTuber types, um, you know, the more we've found that it's so crazy how just throwing something up can change your life. Like just putting it out where on whatever platform you are, it can totally change your life. Like a lot of the, you know, amazing influencers that we've seen and gotten the chance to be close with and work with, you know, it's such a hard business 
to maintain and to keep people's interest because there is so much content. So if you're able to just put something up and keep putting it up until you build and build and build, they'll come. Like you just have to keep building your thing. I think something, you know, in the music industry that a lot of people have through their heads, especially about their own artistries, because a lot of writers and producers are artists themselves and have their own creative tendencies that are personalized to them. You know, I feel like, you know, they they don't want to put anything out of their own because they're like, I don't have a label or I don't have a plan or I don't have management. And it's like, those things will come as soon as you establish what you're doing. You have to put it out to establish what, you know, what's going on. So if you're not doing that, no one knows what you're about. No one's just going to magically know. So like you have to be putting it out to make people aware and, you know, you may feel silly doing it, but like, it's going to get you to where you eventually want to be. It's better to have done it than not done it at all. And you know, kind of been like, oh, well, I guess that never happened, you know? So I'm, I'm out here taking risks. I'm being a risk taker, just putting stuff up and see how people feel about it. But overall, the response has been so amazing. And I'm really, really fortunate to, uh, to have the supporters that I do thus far. So I'm, I'm really excited. <laughs> yeah, that's the best thing to do, especially like we, we said, with all the, all the ways to uh, push content out to people, um, the more you do it, the more something's bound to catch on. And I loved, uh, I did listen to, as I said, I met, I listened to okay. And it sticks with you, which I think is the sign of a good song when you're listening to it and you're like hearing it back afterwards. I think that's the sign of a great song right there. So I think you've already got a hit on your hands. If I may be so bold. Thank you so much. That really means a lot to me. I really appreciate that. This song has been one I've been sitting on for, I believe, two years now. A lot of the songs that I've released are older. So I'll give you like a little, just a bit of the background. So, I, you know, kind of referencing what I just answered a minute ago, I had the same mindset of those artists of like, I'm not going to put anything out. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do anything. Cause like, I need a team. I needed this before I really go all out. And, you know, I just had a conversation with Gabby Hanna, who is one of our clients and a really, really successful YouTuber and, you know, artist now super excited for her. Cause we've been helping with her project for, I think over a year now. Um, but you know, it was a conversation with her where she was like, dude, you have so many like good songs. Why don't you just put them out? Like, I don't understand why you're not doing this. And I was like, oh, well, I, I don't, I don't know which one would be the first one. I don't really know what, what to do. Like, I don't know what the first move is. She's like, dude, just put it up, like put a song up. And so Alina and I, I think two months later wrote a song called gateway, which was my first single. And I just remember being like, okay this is it. I know we just wrote it, but this is it. We're going to put it out. We're going to do a whole music video. We're going to do a thing for it. And that just like launched everything. And from there I'd been, you know, putting out somebody to talk to. I love to hate you. And now, okay, which have been my babies for so long. And I just, you know, I got to that place where I was like, all right, I'm finally letting them, you know, go off and leave the nest. Like go, go my children, go have fun and, and play. And so, okay. has been by far, I think my favorite song, I've ever written for my artist project. It's it's my favorite. It's my my golden child. This is my superstar child and I just wanted to do so well. So I hope people receive it as well as I love it. So I really appreciate that. No problem. Yeah, I, I, once you get that first one out there, I assume it takes a little bit of the pressure off and you're like, okay, I can, I can do this and you're gonna keep releasing. Do you have, how many, how many songs are backlogged that you're still waiting to kind of push out? Are they kind of coming one at a time or do you already have like three or four ready to push out as soon as okay gets on and was well received oh james i have so many songs it's not even funny um yeah i i have so many songs i have so many that you know could get worked up to where they could be you know in a good condition because like you know when you're writing a song initially and it's just a demo phase you know um it's really minuscule like the track is like very uh not done <laughs> So, um, you know, you kind of, when you decide that you want to do it, you're like, all right, I'm going to put this out. Then Alina and I will sit down, comb through sounds and really just pick out what makes the most sense for, uh, for the project and for the song in general to kind of make it cohesive with some of the other stuff and while moving in a new direction, cause you always want to be evolving and growing to a new place while staying consistent. So, you know, I've got a lot of songs. I feel like, you know, they're in places right now where I'm like, all right, the next phase of thing, you know, I really want to make sure I'm doing you know, cause I told you those songs I've had for two years and I'm kind of writing more now that I'm like getting excited about. So I have to find a way to integrate the older songs with the newer songs. So it does sound consistent. So, you know, it's just playing around and seeing what I want to put out next, but I'm, but I am stoked. I will be continuing to put out music, uh, you know, here to come. So I'm stoked. <laughs> Very cool. I was curious if you had to pick your top three, uh, female music influences, who would those three be? And we're going to come back from break 
we're going to get that answer to those top three female music influences from singer-songwriter-producer Ellie Moore right after this. Stand by. This is James Enstall, host of Geek to Me Radio, and in honor of my favorite Themyserian, I've decided to become an Amazon warrior. Harold, give me strength. The next time you want to buy something from Amazon, go to geektomeradio.com first and click on our Amazon affiliate link. Simply shop like you normally would, and when you check out, a small percentage will go towards supporting the show. So remember, the next time you want to search Amazon for the latest Wonder Woman graphic novel or parts for your invisible jet, click through from geektomeradio.com first. The world was in peril. Would you have me stand by and do nothing? I guess I never loved you like I love me. Oh. I guess I never loved you and that's okay with me. Cause someday I love someone like I love me. Oh. But I have to wait a little and that's okay with me. Okay, 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 uh, okay with me. Okay, okay, okay. If you had to pick your top three uh, female music influences who would those three be um so just because i love the songs so much i love the songs i can't express it enough britney spears like you know early 2000s music was just so amazing like i'm a big 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 fan um of the songs max martin is the producer and main writer of those songs and just continues to slay so yeah i mean early early britney um, I'm a big Katy Perry fan. She's she's so iconic. And, you know, I mean, if you were to ever check out my, my social media or see a physical picture of me, I'm very colorful. So that's something I always, like, really love to take from her, like, branding and, like, you know, uh, take note from her. She's just, you know, a superstar. And, um, yeah, this third one is is honestly I just I gotta just go ahead and say it. it's Hannah Montana but I have to I have to say I just grew up watching Disney Channel I wanted to be her so bad growing up and I just think that when it got to a point where it's like all right you're gonna be an artist now like a real one it's like who do you want to like follow in the footsteps of and I'm like Hannah Montana I can't like ever shake that that's never gonna go away like my need to sing best of both worlds at every karaoke night never goes away so I've just I've just embraced it that's me Hannah Montana <laughs> but see now you're the voice of Barbie so you've actually one up Hannah Montana haven't you <laughs> don't make me cry that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said I honestly like that that means so much to me I I, I love Barbie I love I love just bright fun positive you know honestly blondes is that kind of the thing that I'm going after I don't know maybe but you know <laughs> I just I do love the positive message each person I like follow has spread and you know um you know, I just, I love a good, I love a good pop star. What can I say? <laughs> perfect. Now I think that's actually the perfect place to, uh, to end this on. That's uh, that's end on a high note. Ellie Moore, the single once again is okay. Uh, on Instagram at Ellie Moore, E-L-L-I-M-O-O-R-E. And on Twitter at Ellie Moore Music. Where else can people find you? Uh, what's the best way for people to get a hold of the single when it comes out? Oh my gosh, yeah. If you guys want to hear okay, please go to Spotify, Apple Music, any any streaming platform, it's there. YouTube, the music video will be out. And or, or let me just rephrase that. The music video is out. So yeah, feel free to just go take a look at that. And um, you know, I'm always I'm always in my DMs. So if you ever want to drop a line and say hi, I'm I'm around. <laughs> Perfect. Ellie Moore, thanks very much for the time. Continued success. We look forward to seeing more from you coming down the road. Thank you so much, James. I appreciate it. Have a wonderful day. You too. My thanks once again to Ellie Moore. Fantastic, fantastic talent. Look forward to seeing more from her uh, in the future, and I'm sure we will. Uh, we're going to uh, go right into my next interview. We had the chance to talk to writer-director Peter Bishai about a brand new movie. Uh, perfect again for the Halloween season, of course. A uh, movie called Rapid Eye Movement, which he was writing and directing. And here's our interview with Peter. We're joined now by writer-director Peter Bishai talking about his new movie, Rapid Eye Movement. Peter, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for talking to me. Appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for doing this. Very interesting premise. I always liken movies to other movies, and I feel like uh, the premise, for those of you who are listening right now, the premise is a publicity-seeking DJ attempts to break the 11-day no-sleep record for staying awake, but he has a caller call in and says he will threaten to kill him if he does fall asleep. So to me... 
I immediately, in my mind, thought this is kind of like Speed meets Play Misty for me, which I love it. I love the idea. <laughs> I love that combination, right? Absolutely. But instead of a bus uh, having to slow down, it's his own body, his own mind and body. <laughs> exactly. That's right. And I very, and I very much also wanted to uh, get in, you know, a kind of Hitchcock, uh, Hitchcockian uh, feel to it. Uh, rear window. It was a big influence. Also, the idea of a confined thriller, you know. So yes, absolutely. I, I really wanted to be in the vein of classic thrillers for sure in the modern context. And that was very much going to be my next question: Is how did the genesis or the origin of this idea? for the movie that you wrote and directed come into play? Uh, what other influences were there besides Rear Window? Well, the whole genesis of it was a, from a psychology textbook that I, that I was reading one day, you know, and uh, there was a story of, in 1959, there was a real radio DJ in New York City called Peter Tripp who attempted a uh, sleep deprivation marathon, and he broadcast his, uh, his show, radio show from a glass booth in the middle of Times Square to try to break a 200-hour record. Uh, uh, which is eight, at the time was eight days. And I read that and I was like, whoa, that sounds like a very cool idea for a movie because what happens is they, there was, it was well documented what he went through, which was this, you know, t after a couple of days, he starts to break down mentally and emotionally, hallucinations, paranoia, while he's, you know, trying to uh, do his daily routine of this show in the middle of Times Square. And I thought that's an amazing idea. And by introducing another element, which is, well, what if, it's not just him trying to get publicity. What if his life was on the line? That he had to stay awake to stay alive. And that's when I brought in the idea of, of a killer who, who has a vested interest in wanting him to raise money for charity through this wake -a-thon. And that's how the thing was born. So I love the idea of, of it, you know, uh, it's, it's a kind of a small movie and a big movie combined because on the one hand, it's this one guy on this quest to break the record. And he's in this booth and... He goes through the, the whole operation, you know, by himself, but he's in the middle of Times Square, the crossroads of the world, which is thousands of people. And I just love this idea, this guy in this fishbowl kind of scenario. And, uh, you know, and the idea that we could shoot this thing for real in Times Square was very appealing to me. So that was, I just saw all the elements of doing a classic thriller um, and every man who, who's put into jeopardy and, even more importantly, what happens is that as he goes through this ordeal, which turns out to be 11 days awake, he, he breaks down physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. It actually becomes this journey to becoming a better human being in a way, if he can stay alive, right? Because if he has to question everything about himself in order to summon the will to actually go through this uh, ordeal. Yeah, exactly. The, the, uh, some of the best stories, going all the way back to uh, Edgar Allan Poe and everything like that, are always man versus himself uh but this has the added element of man versus man with this killer out there so it's it's uh works on multiple levels for me which i thought was brilliant i know with you being the writer and director when you foresee something in your mind you're starting to plan it out then when you get into actually shooting things change things have you look at them differently what were some of the biggest hurdles that you had to kind of jump over to take this idea from conception to making it reality we're going to take our next break Come right back, talking more with Peter Bashai about rapid eye movement. After this, stand by. Hello, that music I hear. I get misty the moment you're near. Hey, it's Ralph Garman. You are listening to Geek to Me Radio. You've made an excellent choice. I can't believe how smart you are. It's incredible. Your brain is as huge as your biceps. We're back. This segment brought to you by Marcus Theaters. MarcusTheaters.com is the website. A fantastic place to see a movie. We just got done seeing... I guess the last one we saw was Adam's Family at the Ronnie's location. Um, there's not a bad place to see a movie when you're at a Marcus Theater. Every theater is comfortable... The sound is fantastic. The picture looks great. The concessions are wonderful. I organized my Jay and Silent Bob meetup for the viewing of that through Fathom Events at a Marcus Theater, specifically because I knew it would be a first-class experience for everyone coming out to attend and see this movie. Uh, MarcusTheaters.com is the website. You can check where they're located. They're now with Movie Tavern as well to expand 
their hold on the movie-going experience throughout the country. And if you haven't seen a movie to Marcus Theaters, you're missing out. I, I've been to other theaters. I'm not going to call out anyone by name, but there are, I've been to some other theaters. It's not as fun. I, the, the seat's wonky, or it's not clean, or there's something, you know, this food isn't... Marcus Theaters, I've had never anything but a stellar five-star experience at every one of the ones I've been to. I'm excited to, we're going out of town soon uh, on a couple conventions, and I know there's a Marcus Theaters in that location. I'm going to go check it out because A, I love movies, B, why not? That way I can check out other states and say, yeah, Marcus Theaters is actually the best across the board in all states in which they're located. MarcusTheaters.com, the website, check them out. Buy your tickets right there online. Check out what other people are saying about the movies. And enjoy your movie in a first-class setting. MarcusTheaters.com. Speaking of movies, we were talking with Peter Bishai, writer-director of Rapid Eye Movement, discussing with him the concept of taking uh, the movie from a concept when you're writing it into the reality once you start directing. The biggest challenge or the biggest goal uh, was, was to actually shoot it for real authentically in Times Square, you know, uh, most, most people would have, you know, maybe done uh, one or two days of shooting there if you can. And then you go, then you would go into a studio with green screen and, you know, try to control the whole thing. And, and I just thought that that was not going to be, um, realistic. It would kind of look a little bit fake, you know, and, and, or a lot fake. And I just wanted to avoid that. I wanted to, I, the challenge for me was to make something as authentic and, and I kind of, you know, you are really there kind of feeling. So the challenge then became, how do you convince the, the gatekeepers of New York City to let us build an entire set in the middle of Times Square and shoot there for multiple weeks? And that has never been done before in movie history. You know, so here, here we are, this, this little indie film, you know, trying to take on a challenge of doing something that, that you, you know, you're not supposed to be able to do and has never been done. So um, the key then was to come up with a technical solution to this uh, and then present that to them. So what I came up with was the idea that we would build this set um, on the back of a flatbed truck. We would, we built all of our lighting uh, into the actual set. All of our sound rigging was built into the set. The camera was handheld and we had this complete kind of self-contained set on the back of this truck that we could drive in and out or every, every day or every night as needed. And once we convinced them of that, that we could do that with a very minimal footprint and, 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 and just really just get a parking permit, essentially. You can, can we just park on the street, not in the pedestrian areas, which is what most of Times Square is. So we presented that, and they were like, okay, you know what? Let's do, let's do this. <laughs> what? We actually couldn't believe that we got away with it. So that was the challenge. And then once we started doing that, we're working within a very, very small space within a much larger context of Times Square. And then it became a question of, how to choreograph the actors with the camera with myself in that in that set every day so that we would kind of just dance around each other uh, as we kept the camera moving to keep it dynamic and visual. And that was a challenge. That was a lot of fun to be able to do that. And I wanted every scene in the movie to be to look different and feel different. I didn't want to just, you know, stick a camera up in the top corner and just let it film. No, it had to be shot very cinematically and I wanted everything to be uh, have variety and different so that that was also part of the challenge and that was a, a great challenge and uh, and hopefully it makes the whole thing much more visual while we're going through this emotional ride with our main character and talking about the characters uh, some of the actors you you've got some uh, pretty powerful hitters in your cast with Francois Arnaud who was uh, from Schitt's Creek and Blind Spot Midnight Texas you have Rako Ellsworth from Scorpion uh, The Good Wife 24 and of course, Godfrey, one of a voice actor from stuff like our cartoon president and Steven Universe. Talk a little bit about picking your cast, how you found them. Did they any of them come to you and your relationship with the cast? Okay, well, the most important role, of course, is the lead, which was Francois Arnaud. And I needed an actor that was going to have the full range needed to pull off this role. And the full range means that he has to start off utterly charming, attractive, likable in the sense of, uh, you know, that he's just a kind of a star present, you know, and, and he looks good. He sounds good. He's a great talker. So he has to be a sort of a classic leading man in that sense. And then once we present that, you know, that charm, uh, then we start to peel away the layers and he has to start to now disintegrate, you know, day by day of the sleep deprivation marathon 
Billy becomes a, a completely, you know, almost a complete destroyed human being. So to have, we needed an actor that was going to be able to go that full range, you know, and, and Francois has that in spades. Okay. Now I did speak to some other actors um, as we're, we're casting and, you know, they're always afraid of, of to actually do it because we're going to actually go into Times Square in the middle of thousands of people and this, and the, the lead actor had to pull off this incredible emotional breakdown, sustain it for days and days and days in this crazy, you know, environment. And so that a lot of actors are, are kind of like, that's just daunting, too daunting, you know. Francois now, and he was in, and he's like, man, this is a huge challenge. This is scary, but I like that challenge, and I want to take it on. So he was understood the risks involved, but he was willing to take it on and, and, and love the challenge of it. So that was the second issue. I needed an actor who, could, who, who would embrace that challenge. Um, the other actors, no, we just pretty much went through a, a normal casting process. And, uh, you know, we have, of course, we're in New York City. We have this amazing uh, wealth of, of, of acting talent. Uh, the, char- the actor who plays the, the, the villain uh, is David Rose, and he's an actor I've worked with before. I cast him in my first film, The Dueling Accountant, and he and I have a good relationship, working relationship. So, so that was that. But otherwise, it was uh, it was just a normal casting process. Yeah. The clips that I did see, it was I would never have known that the uh, you were in the space in which you described it being so tight, being so condensed. It felt much more open. Talk a little bit about uh, your experience with cinematography and what all w- went into making it feel that way and kind of your decision process into wanting it, uh, because so many films are do- done documentary style, single camera but the fact that you wanted it more cinematically talk about the difference and how you kind of came up with uh, that style of cinematography to use for this film. Yeah. And that's uh, a good question because the booth, when you look at it on screen, it does seem bigger than it is. It's actually, believe it or not, only about seven feet square. All right. Wow. And wow. It's, it's really tiny. And uh, at any given time, there's going to be at least Francois will be in there with maybe one or two other actors. Then you've got the, the cinematographer who's operating the camera, and then you've got me. So, uh, you know, at any given time, there might be three, four, or five people in a seven-foot square space. Now, the key to making that work visually is that, uh, so like I said before, the lighting is actually built into the set. So uh, that, that it's both, you know, on screen, but it's actually the kind of lighting that's used to, to, uh, to look good for our camera. Secondly, uh, the, most imp- the most important choice was what kind of lens were we going to use. So we used a, a it's an 18 millimeter uh, lens, which is a very wide angle, but this is a super high quality Zeiss lens that, uh, that it's actually it's actually a vintage lens. And it's the same lens that uh, Stanley Kubrick used quite a bit. And um, so what this lens does is that it has extremely wide angles, so it gives you a lot of. It actually makes the space look two or three times bigger than it is. But it doesn't mm-hmm. distort the way it, it doesn't distort the image the way a lot of wide angles, like a normal wide angle lens, would kind of distort the image quite a bit, and the actors would look their faces would look kind of all weird and everything. So this this very high high quality lens uh, gives you the advantage of being extremely wide angle, so you get a lot of view, but it keeps everybody looking fairly realistic and normal without, you know, really distorting them. And then uh, this, the third thing is, is movement, camera movement. So the camera, I wanted to keep the camera moving at almost all the time, you know, and, and, and in some cases we would, we would uh, stand with the camera, the, the camera operator right in the middle of the booth and Francois would be in his manic faces would be walking 360 around the booth and we just literally go around and around and around and around. And sometimes we just we would just push the camera in manually, you know, um, and then we would just move the ca- so it, so keeping the camera dynamic is really important. And then of course you've got the whole situation with Times Square, which is this uh, treasure trove of light and and uh, color at all times. And I've always wanted to make that a, a central part of the movie. As we're looking out these windows of this booth, we're, we're always seeing all the neon of, of Times Square and all the people. And, you know, in post-production, we wanted to uh, enhance those colors as much as possible and, and push that as much as possible. And then the last thing I would say is that we used a little bit of filtration, um, giving, giving the uh, – we used uh, what's called a streak filter, which gives these kind of light streaks. And, and, the, and, and then we would, do, we would put 
crystals with like the camera operator would hold uh, crystals right in front of the lens that would give this kind of warping kind of look uh, and the light would reflect. And this was kind of whenever we wanted to go into the mind of the character and kind of give a sort of a hallucinatory feel, we'd use these, these kind of manual tricks as well. So very, very uh, practical kind of use. So it was, it was a, it's really just a combination of all those things. You put them all together and you come up with this ultimate look at the film, which is uh, meant to be the, the, the intensity and glamour of Times Square, but also the psychological state of the main character. And normally this would be kind of a question I would direct to Francois himself, but it, as the director and the person who wrote this, uh, obviously as an actor, if you're playing a drunk, you've either been drunk, you've seen someone drunk. If you're playing something, there's you know some things you can kind of like, oh, I've, I've known someone who's done this or I've, I've experienced this myself. Sleep deprivation isn't something normally someone puts oneself through. Uh, so as far as getting yeah. into the mindset and able to pull that off, what notes and what references were you able to give Francois to kind of help him in his journey uh, for this character, prepare for this role? We're going to take our final break, come back and wrap it up with writer-director Peter Bashai. Stand by. Wondered, whatever became of me. I'm living on the air in Cincinnati. Cincinnati WKRP. Hi, this is Dean Devlin, director of Bad Samaritan, and you are listening to geek to me Radio. And we're back for our final segment. Right before we went to break, we were talking with Peter about uh, helping his character get into the mindset of the sleep-deprived acting, where he's getting into that, that agitated state, and what he as a director could help the actor do. That's a thing we talked about quite a bit. And, uh, you know, one of my references uh, in terms of cinema history, which I would talk about with him, is, uh, is Jimmy Stewart in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I don't know if you remember that, but he, he you know, at the end of the film, he does this uh, filibuster in the Senate where he just you know, stays awake to, to make his case. And, and uh, I, I always thought that was the best example of sleep deprivation on, on camera. And, and uh, a lot of it was the voice you know, um, getting that raspy voice. I'll tell you a key thing for him, though. He was obsessive about the makeup. So we had a whole makeup team to to work on his face at, at any given moment in the, in, the sh- in the shoot because every day of, of sleep deprivation, and there's 11 days that he goes through, um, the, the makeup has to reflect that. And so if, if the, sh- the shading under his eyes was a little too dark, a little too light, wouldn't be, wouldn't be right, you know, or, or the pain that he goes through. And he was obsessive about getting that right. I mean, more than anybody, he would not let anything happen until he looked at himself and just made sure it was perfect. And, and it, and it just goes so far, you know, are, are the eyes red enough? Are the, is the shadow deep enough? Is, 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 are the wrinkles that are forming on his face uh, intense enough, you know, or too much. And and the key, the, the problem was always going too far. If you go too far, then it starts to look cartoonish and kind of like a, like a Halloween get up, you know? Yeah, so yeah. Be, yeah, exactly. So the key was to, to, for all this to be authentic and real, and, but just push it enough so you really feel, you know, within this uh, time frame of the movie that you're watching, that, uh, that every day should look a, a different from the previous day of sleep deprivation. He was obsessive about that, and I give him a lot of credit. And then, and then another thing he came up with was, you know, I remember early on we talked about it, he, he, you know, there's, when, you, when you go through sleep, even when we lose enough, just a few hours of sleep, you know, or a day of sleep, we, our bodies feel really painful. You know, it's a painful experience. And, and he was always kind of in, introducing, if you look at his body language, this, that, that he's, he said, I wanted to feel like he was in pain. So, so whatever he had to draw on for himself to get that feeling of pain, that's, that's, that's his secret. But, but it, was, it was very well thought out, his, his, what he did as an actor, for sure. And the film Rapid Eye Movement, uh, we're talking with writer-director Peter Bishai. Tell people where they can find the movie if they want to go see it. Is it still out in cinemas? Is it coming out? Will it be online on any of the streaming services? Yeah, we did. We just finished uh, a national theatrical run, and it is now available pretty much everywhere on demand, on digital. You can get it at uh, iTunes, Amazon, Voodoo, uh, Redbox on demand, uh, Microsoft, and pretty much everywhere, and then through cable on demand as well. So it's out there. It's available. We hope people will watch it. It's a, it's a pretty wild ride for 108 minutes. 
And uh, it's also really funny. That's the other thing we should mention is that the movie, despite the fact that it sounds intense and psychological, but, you know, after a couple of days, you lose enough sleep, you start to act really nuts and bizarre. And uh, he's, it's a really, there's a lot of humor in the movie as well, which is really important to me. I wanted to get that balance between humor and suspense. And uh, some of his hallucinations uh, are actually really funny as well. So it's a really entertaining ride, and I hope people will, will seek it out. It's, it's a lot of fun. Fantastic. And let people know if they want to find out more about you, your writing, directing, and if they want to connect with you on social media, what's the best way to fi- uh, for people to find you online? Absolutely. They can go to, to my website, peterbeshai.com. Uh, they can see some of my work there and uh, get a hold of me if they want. Absolutely. I'm always happy to talk to people. And uh, that's the best way. Website, peterbeshai.com. Now, was there anything else that we didn't get to or touch on that you wanted to go back? I can edit it back in if you want to mention anything else. Uh, the only other thing maybe to mention is that uh, it, in the movie, he uh, he's trying to break the record to, for, as a publicity fund for his ratings, but he, he, he comes up with a charity to, to raise money for as a kind of, you know, uh, way to get people in. And he picks a disease called SMA, spinal muscular atrophy. And in the movie, he's very uh, callous about it. He thinks, oh, it's dying children. This will raise money. You know, people will, will tune in. But then he starts to become really concerned about what's happening. And, and this, this, connection to the disease is what ties him to the villain actually because he's got a vested interest in him raising money for this thing and uh so yeah we also like to mention that uh that sma is the number one genetic killer of children and so it's we hope the movie brings even just a little bit of awareness to that you know so perfect uh it's been an absolute blast talking to you peter bishai uh best of luck with the continued success of the film and hopefully we'll talk to you again soon all right good talking to you thanks thank you And that's another show in the books. My thanks once again to singer, songwriter, producer Ellie Moore and writer-director Peter Bishai. If you've missed a previous episode, please go check out geek to me Radio for all the back archived shows. We've always got spectacular guests and hopefully you enjoy listening to these interviews as much as I enjoy conducting them. Until next week, my friends. It's not in the way you watch I sound. Thank you, Times Square. Good night. 